0: welcome to the weekend university podcast and this is your host Niall McKeever the weekend university was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public to do this we organized lecture days where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists authors and university professors if you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast.
1: Hi everybody. That's all true. So, uh, my name's Diana Fleischman. I'm American, but I have learned how to say aluminium fairly recently and i'm going to tell you a little bit about evolutionary psychology i just think that there's just so many misconceptions about it and there's a lot of really bad press so a lot of the worst people in evolutionary psychology get a lot of media coverage and so i'm going to tell you a little bit about how we do our science and how we generate hypotheses and and that kind of thing so there's going to be some biology some basic stuff like that and then i'm going to get straight into some of the more interesting things so that you can really dissect Uh, the things that you hear about and and think about evolutionary psychology in a more critical way. So uh, there's been a lot of thought about whether or not you can apply evolution to human behavior ever since Darwin. And Darwin said, in the distant future, psychology will be based on a new foundation, that of the necessary acquirement of each mental power and capacity by gradation. And evolutionary psychologists since the 1990s, since we've been calling ourselves you know, since sociobiology, which is how it basically started, have been talking about how in the future there will no longer be evolutionary psychology and non-evolutionary psychology. At some point, all psychology is going to be evolutionary psychology because at some point there's going to be this merging of fields between biology, ethology, which is the study of animal behavior, and psychology, and those things are all going to be as Ed, you know, Wilson, who's an entomologist, would say, consilient. That is, that they're all going to end up merging together. And that's one big strength of evolutionary psychology, is that it actually takes a lot of other animals, and certainly people cross-culturally, as models for human behavior. So uh, to start off with, we're going to talk a little bit about how to think about the human mind. So evolutionary psychologists There's a bit of a computer metaphor that often happens with evolutionary psychology where they talk about adaptations that have evolved to solve certain problems, and these are mental adaptations. So a variety of animals will have different adaptations. For example, there are these uh, lizards in the Galapagos Islands, and they have to filter the salt out of their system. So they have this sort of crown of salt. They They filter it out through their heads. And there's all these amazing adaptations that uh, non-human animals have. And what evolutionary psychology said is that there are similar adaptations in the human mind, that we have specific programs, potentially, that have evolved to solve specific adept- adaptive problems that we have recurrently faced over evolutionary history. So it's sort of seeing the mind as a collection of apps or a collection of potential programs that solve these various things. That's one way of looking at it. And people have been critical of this uh, particular comparison they've said that this is a little bit like you know back you know when they were the, the biggest technology was something like a mill P- people were comparing human minds to, to mills and fountains and various things like that and when it was computer that became the the analogy du jour but I think the computer analogy still holds really well and so that's one way of thinking about evolutionary psychology is that the human mind is made up of a suite of adaptations. But another way is that evolutionary psychology is just a lens with which to view human psychology. It's a lens with which to generate hypotheses, to to test hypotheses, and to look at various things. So I'm going to break down how evolutionary psychologists see The human mind and how they use this as a lens. But first, I think we have to go through some of the basics of evolution. And certainly, people don't learn that much about evolution, I think, in schools here. Certainly, where I grew up, as uh, Niall just said, I grew up in a conservative kind of town, and evolution wasn't taught in schools. There's actually a warning sticker on the inside of our biology textbooks that there was evolution inside of those books. They actually didn't cover those topics at all. And I became really crazy about evolution, partly, I think because I was very rebellious and it seemed like it was forbidden knowledge. It must be very interesting. So where I grew up, um, they certainly didn't teach evolution at all in school, but here I'm sure that they do to some extent. So I will go through some of the basics because it's generally not covered, not in medical school and certainly not in psychology programs almost at all. So what is uh, evolution? Well, evolution is this process by which species change and species emerge and speciation happens. Different organisms develop. And what are the basic building blocks of evolution? Well the basic building blocks of evolution are first there's variation. So this is a very simple model of an evolutionary process. There's variation. There are these here pink and green uh, circles. And then over time if they were to multiply themselves you would see inheritance. So Over time, you see that they multiply, and they multiply, and then the pink ones stay pink in the next generation, and the green ones stay green in the next generation. And then there's some kind of process by which one of them is selected over another one. So the green ones are favored over the pink ones, or the pink ones are favored over the green ones. And then you see that in the process of selection. So in this particular case, the pink ones, I don't know, they they ran in front of a bus or something. And the green ones are the ones that you see finally, and that is what is going to end up taking over in the final generation, and that's what you're going to see become species-typical, is this what they call a phenotype, which is this green circular form. So that's kind of the basics of evolution. What you need in order for evolution to happen is you need variation, inheritance, and selection. So really important to talk about when it comes to evolutionary explanations is that people get confused about what's called proximate and ultimate causes of behavior. So if I say, why are men taller than women, there's a variety of ways that you could look at that particular question. So one, you could just say, men have longer bones than women do. Well, that's one explanation for why uh, men get bigger than women. I heard recently some uh, feminist scholars say that it's because men are fed better. That is not true, (laughs) at all. And uh, the other explanation would be a more ultimate explanation, which is there has been selection pressure for men to get bigger over time. So let's just talk about like one particular adaptive problem, and this is called the Tin virgins for whys. He's an ethologist. He studied animal behavior, and he talked about different levels of explanation. So why does a mother breastfeed a crying baby? That is a question that you could ask. And uh, Tin virgins four whys, one would be um, to shut it up, obviously. That's the approximate explanation. I would like the baby to stop crying, so I'm going to breastfeed it. That's to shut it up. That's the simplest kind of most straightforward explanation, right? Then the developmental explanation was that over time, the woman has learned how to breastfeed the baby when the baby's crying in order to stop it crying. So this is kind of a behaviorist learning explanation. She has learned that this noxious stimulus, so this aversive stimulus of the baby crying, stops when she puts her teeth in the baby's mouth. And that is a good explanation as any. Then there's a phylogenetic explanation, which is that humans are mammals and all mammals lactate. Even the weird ones like echidnas and platypuses, they have like a weird sweat spot where they lactate. Uh, They don't really have proper nipples. And so that's another reason why is it could be this, um, this phylogenetic explanation, right, that we've evolved. Um, from species. But then there's also going to be a functional or ultimate explanation, which is what evolutionary psychologists tend to think about, which is this explanation of she's providing her offspring calories and nutrients, helping her offspring survive. And there's also a reason why the baby is crying. The baby is crying because if you are happy when mommy feeds you, and you're upset when mommy doesn't feed you, then mom is gonna learn how to feed you. So the mom is training the baby, the baby's training the mother, and they're reciprocally learning from each other in this evolutionary-inspired kind of way. So there are four different meanings of the word why um, when applied to behavior in these levels of explanation, and evolutionary psychologists tend to think about this kind of what we call ultimate level of explanation. Doesn't mean it's the best one, but it just means that it's a functional level of explanation that we are considering. So there's proximate and ultimate answers to various different questions. So why are men taller than women on average? I I covered that one already. Men have bigger bones. You could say men are fed more. You could say that uh, there's a variety of reasons. But the ultimate explanation would be that in all species in which males compete for females, the males end up being larger than the females. And the dimorphism, which is the differences in sexes, um, tends to be greater the more uh, the males actually have to fight physically for the females. And so males in our species are about 50% bigger than, than women are, which means that there was some degree of uh, polygyny, right? that men um, sometimes had more than one uh, mate. Because in perfectly monogamous species, what you see is the male and the female are the exact same size. And in species where there's sexual reversal, where the females, for whatever reason, compete for the males, because some kind of resource allocation has happened, then the females tend to be bigger than the males. So it's the competing sex that tends to get bigger. Um, why do people grow calluses? Well, you grow calluses because something rubbed against your skin, but why would you grow calluses? Why would your skin do that? Well, for the adaptive kind of ultimate explanation, is it so that you don't injure yourself at a site of repeated abrasion? Why do people like to eat pizza? Well, pizza's good, but you might also say that people like to eat pizza because it has fat and carbohydrates and these, uh, especially things like fat were very rare in our ancestral environment and so that's why pizza is especially tasty because it's got fat and sugar which are both comparatively rare as well as salt. And then why do people get jealous? You could say that people are socialized to become jealous or you could say that if all other things being equal, a woman or a man basically had no emotional qualms whatever about their partner frolicking around with whomever, those people tended to have worse reproductive outcomes than people who had a problem with their partner frolicking around with whomever. And so that's what you would call the kind of ultimate explanation. So the engine of evolution is actually this what's called differential reproductive success. So the key to natural selection is differential reproductive success because of heritable variants. So everybody has ancestors. All of you are the product of billions of years of evolution. Each of you have evolved because you have an unbroken chain of ancestors who all managed to find a mate and reproduce. You guys are all the ends of a success story of some kind, uh, whatever way that happened. And in every species, you also see that every species existing today. So all uh, of us have ancestors unbroken um, to the beginning of life itself. And this differential reproductive success is the engine of evolution. So Genghis Khan, I like to talk about, um, he has 16 million descendants. Half of a percent of all men in the world are descendants of Genghis Khan. And Genghis Khan is not the ancestor of so many men because he mastered the art of sensual massage. He is the ancestor of very many million men because he killed lots of men and had sex with lots of women. And that was his particular route to uh, reproductive success. Your mileage may vary. There are other ways of doing it, obviously, that are my, much nicer than that. So there are three different uh, possible outcomes of the evolutionary process, and adaptations are the ones that we tend to talk about in evolutionary psychology the most. So there are adaptations, there are byproducts, and there are noise. There is noise, and adaptations actually are what evolves to solve a particular adaptive problem. Byproducts are the byproducts of that. I'll go into a particular example. And then noise is just you know random variation. And as evolutionary psychologists, we try and think about the human mind, what is what exactly? So what is an adaptation, what is a byproduct, and what is noise? So I'll ta- start off with like a physiological example, and then I'll kind of move on to psychological examples because people tend to have an easier time uh, grappling with uh, these kind of physiological examples. So let's talk about the umbilical cord. The umbilical cord does lots of neat things. The umbilical cord actually transfers nutrients from the mother to the fetus. It also transfers stem cells. It connects the two of them, and then it breaks off after the baby is born. So this is a, a new baby with the umbilical cord still intact. So the umbilical cord is an adaptation. It has a variety of functions. It, it does that transfer of nutrients thing, and then it also um, transfers things like stem cells and antibodies as well. So that's all important things that the umbilical cord does. Well, what is a byproduct of the umbilical cord? Well that's your navel. Everybody's got a belly button unless you had some kind of um, strange birth situation like virgin birth and uh, all of us have navels and the navel is really not very good for much. You can't store food in it. You can't attract mates with it. I mean, I guess you could get it pierced and that might be quite cute. Uh, and there's not really much that you can do with your navel. It just happens to be a byproduct of the process of having an umbilical cord and then no longer having an umbilical cord anymore. So the navel and the, the belly button is a really good example of a uh, byproduct. And it's also a good example of a byproduct because you see a lot of variation in it. So in some pr- particular characteristics, an adaptation tends to be something that's kind of species typical. Uh, and we'll talk about some caveats to that. but. When an adaptation, you generally see it as species-typical, and it's not necessarily something that develops at birth. So that's a very good indication that something might be an adaptation if it develops you know, in the absence of any learning, but we know that women tend to develop breasts and men tend to develop beards even in the absence of learning how to grow breasts or beards, right? So even though those things are not there at birth, we know that this is a typical species-level adaptation uh, that we all have for whatever reason. Don't get me into why beards evolved. It's actually a very contentious issue. So uh, this is the navel and that's a byproduct. So what's noise? Well, noise is all of the different varieties of navels that there are available. So there are innies and there are outies. I don't know if you guys have different words for them here than we do in the United States. But these are all like noisy manifestations of this byproduct. And you can also talk about noise in different ways, right? If somebody has a stroke and they lose a specific faculty, that's not an adaptation. That's an an accident that happened to them. If someone's missing a finger, that's also noise. So these are all things that can happen and they're not species typical. They don't solve an adaptive problem. Those are all what you might call noise. So those are the three products of, of evolution. But adaptations are the primary product. And there are a lot of different ways that we think about what is a byproduct and what is an adaptation in evolutionary psychology. So one example, uh, just to keep you guys awake, I'll, I'll just throw in some random sex stuff every once in a while, is uh, or, or homicide. So one example is homicide. <laughs> A homicide, uh, there's this, this, these two camps about whether or not it's an adaptation or not. So uh, David Buss, who was my mentor, who I studied with, he thinks that murder is an adaptation, that we actually evolved uh, to murder people uh, or to engage in homicide in certain uh, situations. And it, it, he does this by talking to people and asking them, have you ever had a homicidal fantasy? And the vast majority of men, over 90%, and even a huge majority of women, something like 80%, have at some point in time fantasized about killing somebody else. And usually that was somebody who was like an intrasexual rival, somebody who was trying to, what David Buss would call mate poach, right? Trying to take your mate. That's usually the kind of person that you fantasize about killing. And there's a variety of reasons why people don't kill each other, but in some more ancestral societies, hunter-gatherer societies, that might be more like our ancestral past, even something like 20% of men can die from being killed by other men. There are some hunter-gatherer groups, like the Yanawama, where you're not actually really considered a man until you've killed somebody. And in humans that are in more Western societies, we tend to not do this for a variety of reasons. And there's another camp of people, um, Martin uh, Daly and Margot Wilson, who were um, out of Canada at McMaster, and they said that homicide was a byproduct, that we have mechanisms with which to punish people, we get angry with other people, we want to punish them physically, and then occasionally we accidentally kill them. So this is this idea that there's a byproduct and an adaptation uh, reason for homicide. So two different camps of evolutionary psychologists disagreeing about whether or not homicide or engaging in homicide is actually an adaptation. Another one is um, women's orgasm. So this is a, uh, an emoji that some people wanted to introduce, and it's called um, orgasm face. It's ahegao, which I think is Japanese. And of course the Japanese have a word for orgasm face, and um, that's basically what this, this guy is. Oh, no. I knew that was going to happen. Um, so, that is, uh, there's, there's two different, so obviously men have to have orgasms in order to reproduce, but women don't. And in most species, uh, females don't have orgasms. Uh, so why do females of our species have orgasms? Well, there's a byproduct hypothesis and there's an adaptation hypothesis. Some of the adaptation hypotheses say that women are more likely to get pregnant if they have an orgasm, or a woman who has an orgasm with a certain man is more likely to have sex with him in the future. It's sort of a way of signaling this is a good guy to keep having sex with. Whereas there's an also a byproduct hypothesis, which is that women have orgasms simply because there's a portion of fetal development in which we are androgynous, right? In which we're mixed male and female, and where we have the beginnings of uh, ovaries and testes altogether. And why do men have nipples? For the very same reason, right? Men's nipples are not very useful. Men's nipples are a holdover. They're a byproduct of that androgynous phase of when uh, we were in fetal development. And so people say the same thing about, for example, the clitoris. It's a holdover from this period of time. And the fact that women, some women manage to have fun with their clitorises really is neither here nor there. It doesn't really help them breed. And that women who can have orgasms and cannot have orgasms reproduce at similar rates. So these are the kind of adaptationist versus byproduct hypotheses about, for example, um, female orgasm. So, These shows you that there's a really plethora, there's no like one evolutionary psychology hypothesis about any given issue. There's usually two competing camps, two competing hypotheses, or very many competing hypotheses about where the origin of something is, whether they say that it's uh, an adaptation, a byproduct, or noise. So these are examples of kind of natural selection, uh, well mostly. Well, there's another form of selection that happens. So natural selection is whether or not you survive or not, which is necessary for reproducing. It's pretty hard to reproduce after you're dead. But there's also something called sexual selection. And sexual selection was a really big contentious issue in the Victorian era because Charles Darwin didn't know how to talk about it. He said, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail whenever I gaze at it it makes me sick because he didn't know how to explain it. Here you have this huge train of feathers and actually it is very bad for the peacock. They have some difficulty running away from predators and it's a huge burden on them. So why have they developed it? And why do peacocks and not peahens develop it? And that was the theory of sexual selection which came about which was why these various characteristics develop, usually in the male of the species to advertise to the female of the species. And this picture shows some other variations on this. Um, This is a turkey, and they have a snood, so they have this like big wrinkly bit of skin that comes over their faces, and apparently lady turkeys find that very erotic, that scrotal looking thing on their face. And so the female turkeys have over time selected males to have this particular characteristic. There's also been obviously some human intervention as well. And this is a cockerel. And he's also got um, this colorful plumage, which humans have built upon with artificial selection. But the original selectors were actually females. And that was one reason why it was difficult for Victorians to appreciate sexual selection, which was basically that females have this power to drive males to have often completely ridiculous ornaments or completely strange different behaviors. And the females have actually driven this. So one female develops an appetite for this, then the males become more attractive. So she also passes on her preference. And if that preference is associated with health and vigor in the male, then that is also going to get passed on to her offspring, her preference. And then he's going to have these ornaments. And you can see this in um, Birds of Paradise. So these are Birds of Paradise. And I don't know if you've seen them. There's this um, one that he kind of looks like a huge UFO. He's got like this kind of uh, turquoise. I'm going to just do like a, he does this dance and then he's got a massive yellow beak. And they all do these really strange dances for the females. And they have these very unusual characteristics. And these birds are really well known because they have some of the most extravagant morphology with which to impress females for whatever reason, because they've been isolated on this particular island or because the females developed a certain kind of color vision. So obviously the most popular example of sexual selection is the peacock's tail, but males also develop uh, these various forms of different plumage and behavior in a variety of different uh, species. And you also see things like in lyre birds, these birds in Australia, they're able to make noises of all different kinds of birds, including, you know, they can make car alarm noises, they can make chainsaw noises, they repeat all these noises they hear because the female is actually really attracted to the male's repertoire. The more different sounds he can make, the more attractive um, she considers that. And this has been um, also one of the selection pressures in penises. I told you I was going to keep you awake. Um, these are all different strange animal penises. This is a plant penis. Um, don't ask me how it works. <laughs> And these are also different uh, kinds of uh, non-human animal penises, and they have various different functions. So one of their functions is obviously to please the female, but another function that they have is to potentially displace male semen or to displace another male. Males of other species do horrible things, like they put a copulatory plug in the female, or they put some toxins in her so she can't live long enough to mate with other males. There's all kinds of really bizarre things that happen with sexual selection. And then you also see sexual selection manifest in um, non-human primates. So these are um, polygamous mating systems. So this is one male has multiple female uh, partners, but he usually scares away the other males with brawn, for example. So what you see with gorillas is that they just beat up other males, but they they actually have very small testicles and a very small penis because they don't compete with other males with their penis, they compete with other males with their brawn. But in multi male, multi female groups, what you see is these larger, more complex penises. You see, uh, and that's due to female selection. The females are choosing different, more complex penises because they have a choice of many males. The male hasn't already been chosen for them by beating up all the other possible suitors that they might have had. So, this is a combination of two things what you might call mate choice, which is the female choosing the male for a specific reason, but also for intrasexual competition, and intrasexual competition—that's within-sex competition—is what you see um, here. So these are two elephant seal males, and elephant seal males get really big, and they develop these like this huge blubber, and they also have these kind of fangs, and they really hurt each other in this kind of competition. And these two males are competing with one another something like only 1% or half of a percent of all of the males of the elephant seals will actually get to mate because they do this competition and one male usually will have a harem that is the whole beach, the whole, all the females. The biggest male who weighs tons actually will beat up all the other males and the other males are all kind of scattered around being in cells, you know, not really knowing what to do with themselves. And um, I went to Ananuevo Beach and I actually saw them in person. And they have, um, interestingly, they actually have a penis bone. And the guy told us that the elephant seals really ignore people, they're actually pretty safe to be around even when they're doing this kind of thing. But one time two males rushed at each other uh, and one of the males was actually on top of a female copulating with her, another male rushed him and broke his penis bone. And that was a very effective strategy. I don't think he intended to do that. But he put that other male basically totally out of commission for the rest of the mating season. (laughs) So speaking of sexual selection, there's an idea that um, the human mind is also the product of sexual selection. So you you have this huge ornamental peacock's tail. Why can humans do so many things with our minds? Why are we so good at things like making art, making music, making conversation, creativity, poetry? Why do we have sex in so many positions? Why do we wear such colorful clothes? All the things that humans do. And one idea is that this is the result of sexual selection, that the human mind has actually an ornament. It's a signal, an honest signal of health and vigor. And this is a um, quote from the mating mind. The human mind and the peacock's tail may serve similar biological functions. The peacock's tail is the classic example of sexual selection through mate choice. It evolved because peahens preferred larger, more colorful tails. Peacocks would survive better with shorter, lighter, and drabber tails, but the sexual choices of peahens have made peacocks evolve big, bright plumage that takes energy to grow and time to preen and makes it harder to escape from predators such as tigers. The human mind's most impressive abilities are like the peacock's tail. They are courtship tools evolved to attract and entertain sexual partners. By shifting our attention from a survival-centered view of evolution to a courtship-centered view We can understand more of the richness of human art, morality, language, and creativity. So this is this argument that actually what makes us human, what makes us special, is actually the result of often mutual mate choice, right? Males and females choosing one another, and also females developing high intelligence with which to select the most intelligent males. So one idea is that these characteristics that are very unusual and elaborate, Get driven to fixation, something like intelligence, in a much shorter period of time, potentially, because the females are exercising very strong choice on these particular characteristics. So these are some of the building blocks of uh, biological evolution. Now before, I talked about adaptations, and adaptations can be used for survival or reproduction, right? but adaptations are not always species-typical. And this is something that's very interesting for humans because you might notice when you look around you that we all look really different and we all have very different kinds of personalities. And why might that be? Why is it that we have such different morphology and psychology, each of us? And one idea is something which is called um, frequency-dependent selection. So frequency-dependent selection is that there are a bunch of different strategies that can coexist together and each of those strategies has a place in the whole kind of marketplace of different strategies. So frequency-dependent selection requires that the payoff of each strategy decreases as its frequency increases. And I'll give you a human example here in a second after I finish talking about um, the fish. But there are these bluegill sunfish and they have these heritable differences, and there's two different kinds of morphs of the male, right? So the male has got sort of a, a harem of females, and he, they're all laying their eggs, and he's fertilizing them, and he's keeping other males away because he wants to make sure that all those eggs are going to be his babies, right? And then there's two other morphs of males that can come in, and they can compete with that big brawny alpha bluegill sunfish, right? And there's one who looks like a female. So he sneaks in, and they uh, have a, a name for this. It's very technical. It's called a sneaky fucker. <laughs> and they come in, and uh, so one of them kind of looks like a female. He comes in, and he can fertilize the eggs. And the big brawny male thinks, oh, another female in my harem. This is brilliant. And then there's a little tiny male, the little smallest one here. And he's actually the, 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 um, the SF. Uh, he comes in and actually uh, fertilizes the eggs without the other male noticing. So there are three different male strategies that all coexist together. And these are heritable individual differences. So sneaky fucker dads are likely to have sneaky fucker sons and they tend to have uh, normal you know, female offspring. So there's genes that can be expressed differently in males and females. And there are big sex differences in this particular species, right? There's basically only one morph of the female and there are three different morphs of the male. And this is one uh, possible explanation for something like psychopathy. So people who are psychopaths, they have uh, very little remorse, they have sort of a drive to exploit people, they tend to not feel guilty, and they also, uh, most of the psychopaths are actually men. It's very rare for women to be psychopaths. And there's this estimate that about 1% of the population is um, psychopaths and This actually potentially has increased because nowadays there are these groups and cities and a psychopath can go from one place, impregnate a bunch of women, and possibly go to another place, and being a psychopath is heritable. But it's also a frequency-dependent strategy, right? If you have too many psychopaths in the population, then people are going to be very wary of them, and then they're going to actually be selected out. So there's this low-frequency but consistent frequency that you could have in a population. And that's one idea about why there are differences in personality, right? that always going to be a mix of extroverts and introverts, aggressive people and passive people. And if you have any too much of one particular kind, they're going to have worse um, reproductive success for that reason. So talking a little bit about evolutionary psychology, what actually did our mind evolve to do? What actual environment did our mind evolve in? This is kind of a complicated question. So one idea is that there's this thing called the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. So this is Cosmides and Tubi, and um, they're these uh, big founders of evolutionary psychology. They wrote a lot of the initial stuff, and I actually have one of their readings on your reading list for this uh, lecture. And they said, It is certain that our ancestors, like other old world monkeys, uh, nursed, had two sexes, chose mates, had color vision calibrated to the spectral properties of sunlight, lived in a biotic environment with predatory cats, venomous snakes, and spiders, were predated on, bled when wounded, were incapacitated from injuries, were vulnerable to a large variety of parasites and pathogens, and had deleterious recessive rendering them subject to inbreeding depression if they mated with siblings. Basically, for monkeys just like us, if they had sex with their um, close relatives, then they were going to have offspring that were less fit than if they engaged in outbreeding. That is, if they um, they bred with less related others. So what this is essentially saying is that we have adaptations that are really old. So for example, the adaptation that says, be scared of those that are bigger than you and get out of their way, that's probably older than fish. That's probably as old as insects, right? That's, that's very many, many millions of years old. But adaptations, for example, for lying, when we speak to each other, we're trying to find loopholes in our social environment where we can break rules, but we condemn people who break the rules also. Those kinds of adaptations are probably newer. And I'm gonna talk about disgust as well, which seems to be human-specific, and is probably a relatively newer adaptation. So you can't say that all adaptations evolved for this particular environment, which is called um, the Pleistocene. The Pleistocene was this period of time in which uh, we lived in small hunter-gatherer groups um, on the African savanna. So we have adaptations that are super old, and we have adaptations that are much newer. And each adaptation that we have psychologically is for an environment that is somewhat different, depending on the age of that adaptive problem and the age of the faculties we had to solve it with. So this is called, yeah, the evolution environment of evolutionary um, adaptiveness. And one interesting problem with evolutionary psychology is that now the environment is very different than it was, and people really differ about how much they think that matters. So our adaptations might actually not be working exactly like they're supposed to. And this is an idea which is called mismatch, which is that in our modern skulls, there's this kind of stone age brain. And you can definitely see the effects of that with certain kinds of things. So we did not evolve to, uh, around food like cheeseburgers and, um, and donuts. We didn't evolve around cars. We didn't evolve in large and complex societies, for example. We didn't evolve using currency. All these things are relatively new, and for this reason, we actually don't have adaptations that deal very well with these things, things like um, alcohol and high-fat, high-sugar foods. Because, for example, sugar and fat were very scarce in our ancestral environment, we tend to overindulge in these things. we are more afraid of things like snakes and spiders than we are of things like cheeseburgers and um, high blood pressure, and we like to read stories about these particular things. You know, you're not going to see a horror movie about a nurse who doesn't wash her hands before engaging in surgery right? because we don't actually have adaptations to be afraid of these things. We have adaptations instead to be afraid of more ancestral conditions, things like people who might want to kill us or hurt us and our families rather than things like uh, a car that goes through a a red light or a malfunctioning traffic light. If we had evolved for millions of years in our current society, we would find other things scary because we would have evolved psychological adaptations to deal with these things uh, because those people who had adaptations, for example, to be really petrified at the sight of a cheeseburger would probably live much longer and have more offspring than those who did not. It's a bad example. People who have cheeseburgers eat cheeseburgers probably reproduce at a much higher rate than people who don't. (laughs) But you, you get my drift. So this is this idea called mismatch. This is the way that the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness differs. And this is also something that you might see in what we would call something called fake fitness. So there's a reason why we find video games so compelling, is because they were designed to really get our juices flowing about solving particular, easy to solve, or not easy to solve problems, but problems that are just beyond the reach of our faculties to get us kind of in a flow state. And when you win in a video game, you get a feeling that you are high in status and you're doing a great job in life. The same thing with pornography, right? Um, You might laugh at your dog growling in the mirror at his own reflection, and yet we can get aroused at two-dimensional images of people we will never meet. So we're not really that much better than the dog in that sense. Um, okay, so it's 40 minutes in. We're gonna get into a hypothesis generation stuff. I'm gonna give you guys a five minute break now. Okay, so um, now we're gonna talk a little bit about how evolutionary psychologists generate hypotheses. And um, this is in response to, there's a lot of criticism of evolutionary psychology uh, from you know, people like biologists and geneticists and um, some psychologists as well. Actually, we get it uh, kind of on all sides, this criticism. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how we develop um, hypotheses. So one thing that's very interesting about our evolved psychology and about being human generally is you know, if you're a physicist and you talk to somebody about physics, they don't tell you you know, how your research is wrong and how your grandmother knew what you're telling them and, and things like that because people are unfamiliar with how things like quarks work. But everybody has some insight into their own minds. And actually, what I would say is that we're too close to our own minds to actually know what's going on inside them. In some sense, we don't understand them. And I think that some of the, you know, most productive people in evolutionary psychology and in psychology generally have been, you know, on the autism Asperger's spectrum because for them, things that we understand kind of intuitively, the mind reading that we have intuitively, it seems more exotic and, and in need of explanation. And I, I have found this. And also, if you think about human behavior the way you would think about any kind of um, non-human animal behavior, then you would also have this experience where if you're looking at you know, human interaction, like there's a David Attenborough documentary playing in the background, and you're looking at human interaction in this particular way, then it makes the familiar exotic enough that you can actually dissect it and disentangle it and think about people's interactions. So uh, William James said, Ask for the why of any instinctive human act. Why do we smile when pleased and not scowl? Why are we unable to talk to a crowd as we talk to a single friend? Why does a particular maiden turn our wits so upside down? The common man can only say, of course we smile. Of course our heart palpitates at the sight of the crowd. Of course we love the maiden, that beautiful soul clad in that perfect form. So palpably and flagrantly made for all eternity to be loved. So this common man idea is that for these, you know, Sort of neurotypical people, but even people who are just not looking at human behavior in this alternative way, everything just seems really obvious and effortless. And that's exactly what you would expect. You don't want, you know, evolution doesn't want us thinking about our own behavior and our own adaptations and our own psychology in this kind of meta way, because it would really interfere with things. And that's why evolutionary psychology is not as easy to do as just merely introspecting, because we're really unaware of a lot of what we uh, do. And part of that is also how we communicate to other people. There's this uh, sort of analogy, which is with the press secretary of the mind. Your conscious mind is what conveys your motivations and your desires to other people. If you were running a government and you were going to assassinate somebody or start an illegal war, you wouldn't tell your press secretary. And in the same way, you are often not aware of your worst motivations because you don't want to tell those to other people. So these things. Uh, Yeah, I reminded, um, David Buss did this study of asking people about their homicidal motivations, and I was talking to this uh, guy about the homicidal motivation study, I said, have you ever had a fantasy about killing somebody? He said, no, of course not, I would never have such a fantasy. And then about 15 minutes later in the conversation, he said, yeah, when I was a teenager, I used to do bare-knuckle boxing. I was like, you did bare-knuckle boxing, and you never thought about killing any of the people that you were bare-knuckle boxing with? I found that difficult to believe. So there's two ways of generating hypotheses. There are these top-down, theory-driven way of generating up, or there's this bottom-up way of generating hypotheses. And these are the two ways that evolutionary psychologists um, look at things. So I'm just going to talk about these, what we call adaptive problems. These are recurrent problems that we've experienced in our environment, and actually thinking about how do they work, right? So there's different kinds of adaptive problems, and if we're thinking about the human mind, we're thinking about what were the kinds of problems that we had to solve all the time that would have been very important for survival and reproduction. So one of these is the must-solve kinds of problems. Uh, So there's must-solve problems versus beneficial problems. If you're going to live in an environment, any environment, you have to be able to solve the problem of finding nutritious food. If you're gonna have descendants, you have to solve the problem of finding a mate, right? And you also have to avoid things like lethal infection. But things that are beneficial are things like avoiding mate infidelity and things like detecting the compatibility of a mate's immune system. And this was some research that was done where women actually smelled men's t-shirts and they found that women were more attracted to the smell of men who were slightly different than they were on a gene, a set of genes that has to do with the signature of the immune system. So the reason that we have sex at all is actually so that we can create new combinations of organisms that are less susceptible to infection. Because if we were all clones, then if one of us got a flu and died, all of us would get a flu and die, right? Because we would all have the same genetic signature on our immune systems. So one thing that you want to do if you're going to sexually reproduce, and maybe some of you will consider it, is that you would like to find somebody with an immune system that's somewhat different than yours, so you can make a new uh, immune signature. There's also problem frequency. So you think about how often these problems might have been around in the ancestral environment. And there are different ideas about what our ancestral environment was like, as I said, and how old some of these adaptations were or are. So there's high impact, high frequency adaptive problems. So that's like finding a food and finding mates, right? These things are really important and they influence you a lot, whether or not you manage to solve these particular problems with your psychological machinery. There's also high impact, low frequency adaptive problems, which are things like avoiding kidnapping or avoiding homicide. There are some groups in the world where there's very little warfare between groups and there's very little kidnapping. And then there are groups like the Yanaama in Venezuela and Brazil and uh, there's a very good ethnography that I would suggest, which is called um, Yanomamo, where a Portuguese woman at 14, she gets separated and gets kidnapped by them. And she ends up having, I think, three or four different husbands because she's kidnapped and taken from group to group. And uh, for these women in these particular societies, being kidnapped and taken to new groups uh, and homicide is incredibly common. So that's a very high impact, but potentially low frequency problem. It could be that there would be a skip in generations, you know, between when anybody when there was any warfare. But there's pretty good evidence that warfare is part of our evolutionary history, and we have adaptations that might be. Well, I, I'm going to use "design" as shorthand, but evolved um, in order to help us deal with these problems. And there's also low impact, high frequency adaptive problems like avoiding ectoparasites, and that's what I'm going to talk about also a little bit later. Which are things like ectoparasites, or things like uh, ticks and leeches and bed bugs, and something like a bed bug is pretty gross. Uh, they also have a horrible mating strategy, which I will not tell you about. They're just like horrible in every way. But they they kind of do this breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They bite you three times, but they actually don't really communicate a lot of d- disease. They take some blood out of you, and they obviously cause skin lesions that diseases can get into, whereas things like ticks and mosquitoes can actually give you diseases. And I see all of you kind of holding your skin. We'll talk a bit more about that later. <laughs> so what would you postulate You know, is in the human mind is what we would call, as evolutionary psychologists, design features. So let's say you found this robot on Mars, and you were trying to figure out, without actually examining it directly, just from a distance, what does this robot have to have as its design in order for it to have survived and exist where you see it currently? So you know that if it's moving, it has to have some way of getting energy. You know it has to have some way of avoiding getting sand in its gears. You know that it has to be able to withstand the solar radiation, the temperatures that are on that particular planet. And in the same way, we know that we have lived through this kind of environment and that we have design features, what, what, what evolutionary psychologists call it, that we have in our minds to solve these particular problems. And because evolutionary psychologists, there's no like gene for jealousy. There's no gene for uh, disgust what we have to do is we postulate there's very specific design features and then we test for evidence of those particular design features. And I know it sounds a bit like creationisty to talk about design features, but really that's how you see all animals is that they seem to be designed for their environment. So we also call human psychology design features. So there's design features in evolutionary psychology. So if a psychological adaptation exists to deal with a problem, what cues could it reliably use to solve that problem, right? So what cues can you use? So for example, one of my colleagues, she works on incest. We would like to avoid having sex with our brothers and sisters, for the most part. And unless we're like, you know, Egyptian royalty or something. And in which case, that's all the more the merrier. and. Uh, So, in terms of incest, we want to avoid that. So how do we avoid that? Well, we avoid that through a variety of cues that we can use. One of those, for example, is that if we see a child nursing at our mother's breast, then we will develop a sexual aversion to that child. Or if you grow up for a long time with someone else, and you know them from when you're a very young child, you probably won't be sexually attracted to them, and this was found out the hard way on... Israeli kibbutzes. They raised all these children together thinking that they would all get married together, but actually in the psychology, the evolved psychology of these children, they were all siblings and they didn't want to marry each other when they grew up. I think it's in the Philippines that they also have a similar kind of situation where uh, a little girl will actually go and live with her future husband's family um, from a very young age, from like five or six, and they are raised together And those marriages tend to produce very few offspring because if you know somebody from when you're six years old, you have cues, which is called the Westermark effect, that you are siblings, and you are not sexually attracted to people who you've lived with for a long time during childhood. So that's a reliable cue, right, that we would have experienced throughout our evolutionary history. How might the inputs to the program be processed? So, for example, will you the inputs come in in a normal way or are they going to be somehow inflated? So one example is that almost all animals, mammals, actually are afraid of snakes because snakes are often poisonous. And even cattle who live on an island that has no snakes at all, they will shy away from a hose even though they've never seen a snake before. So if you were to call it roughly a snake detection program or snake detection module, that's gonna be much more sensitive than it actually needs to be, or actually it needs to be sensitive. So it's a little bit like a smoke detector. If there's two kinds of mistakes a smoke detector can make, right? One of them is to go off when there is no fire. That's a better mistake than the smoke detector not going off when there is a fire, right? And in the same way, it's better for you to think there's a snake when there is none than you, for you to ignore a possibility of snake when there is. So that's the kind of things that you might see with inputs. We see the same thing with men and um, sexual attention. There's this thing called sexual overperception bias. For men, they perceive women's uh, smiles, you know, whatever the barista is doing, as sexual interest, even if it's not, because men actually inflate what they think is sexual interest. Uh, A woman who's just being friendly might seem sexually interested to a man because the mistake of thinking a woman was sexually interested when she wasn't is less costly than the mistake of thinking a woman is not sexually interested when she is. What behavioral outputs might you expect? So we'll talk more about that when we talk about disgust. And how might learning or culture modulate the expression of the psychological adaptation? Would you expect it more or less depending on the environment or the culture in which people are living? So I'm going to talk about an example, which is something that I work on, which is disgust. And disgust is really important. So there's a variety of pathogens that can get to you, and I will only leave this slide up very briefly because I know it's early, which is there are a variety of kinds of pathogens. So there's microparasites, micropathogens, and thinking about, you know, like a lion or a tiger chasing you, Uh, Pathogens are like that, but they're tiny. They're like little tiny tigers, and they're trying to get inside you and make a home in you and raise their families in you, and they really would like to do that, and you would really prefer that they didn't. And they would also like to manipulate your your behavior so that you can pass on more of them. So microparasites are things like bacteria and protozoa and viruses, which get into you, and they're microscopic. And then there's macroparasites, which are things like helminths, which are things like worms, and arthropods, things like um, ticks that want to eat you from the outside. So these are all pathogens that we see. And speaking of consilience, we see these, we see uh, mechanisms to avoid these behavioral mechanisms in many different non-human animals, but disgust seems to be uniquely human. So just briefly, I'll say that, um, you know, we have this immune system that has this incredible complexity. It's just amazing at actually targeting pathogens once they get inside of us. But the immune system is actually, It's really costly to fight off infection once it gets inside of us. If you even get a vaccine, it can increase your metabolic demands by something like 20%. Um, So it can actually be really difficult to have the energy to fight off infection, all other things being equal, and also considering the kind of environment where you wouldn't have necessarily had all the calories you wanted. Um, both the pathogen and the defense can cause damage. So when people die of tuberculosis, they're actually dying because of the immune system's response is killing the lung tissue rather than the actual uh, pathogen itself. Pathogens can induce behavioral change. So for example, um, rabies can cause uh, delirium and can make animals aggressive because it wants to pass itself on. So it changes the behavior of the organism. and The pathogen has certain desires for your behavior that you don't have for your own behavior. Um, Pathogens can make you more susceptible to other pathogens, and also, as my former advisor always likes to say, it's bad to be dead. When you're dead, you can't find mates, you can't find food, you can't take care of your offspring. Being dead is really not optimal for most of the things you want to do as an organism. What's ideal, actually, if you're trying to avoid these pathogens, is to avoid disease actually before it gets inside of you. If there's a way for you to actually screen the environment and avoid contexts in which there's disease, and this is one of the big endeavors of um, evolutionary psychology. And you see these behaviors in non-human animals, so for example, in these birds amazing thing about baby birds, which I would really wish for small children to learn, is their poo actually comes in this like little membrane. It actually comes in its own nappy. And the mother can just pick it up like this and chuck it out like a piece of chewing gum. How great is that? (laughs) Babies, take note. And so this is the way that the mother keeps the nest clean. She also lines the nest with different kinds of plants that can keep... Uh, infectious diseases from getting inside. And there are some animals like uh, chimps and orangutans who just make a new nest every night so that pathogens can't actually infect them in uh, the nest that they are sleeping in over and over again. And then there's also grooming behavior. Animals spend a lot of their time grooming, all day, every day. They groom thousands of times. They shake their heads and they swat their tails to avoid um, things like um, ectoparasites getting on their skin and taking their blood and transmitting disease. So these are behaviors that animals engage in um, to avoid uh, disease. Um, So these are just more uh, that I'm not going to go into, into a huge amount of detail. Just a couple of interesting ones. Even sheep don't eat where they poo. They know to selectively uh, forage away from that. Um, There's grooming and uh, preening. Uh, Birds will line nests with different um, plants that are toxic to different parasites. And then you also, if you've ever watched um, mice copulating and who hasn't, um, you see that after they copulate, they spend a lot of time cleaning themselves. They clean their genitals and then they usually have another go, but they will clean themselves over and over again because they're interacting with another and they want to make sure that any parasites or pathogens don't have a lot of time to get inside um, their mucous membranes. You also see infanticide and cannibalism, for example, in hamsters, if a hamster has one sick offspring, Um, she'll kill it and eat it so that it doesn't infect the rest of them. So these are all disease avoidance behaviors that non-human animals have. Um, But I'll I'll tell you one last one. This is anting. This is so cool. Um, When ants get scared in their response, they actually spray formic acid, and formic acid is antipathogenic. So if a bird feels like um, she needs a, a good clean, she'll actually go and stir up an ant's nest and actually wait for the ants to spray formic acid on her because it's gonna get rid of her parasites. And then this last one is um, cleaner fish. These are um, fish cleaning um, each other. These are these little guys. They have this sort of like uniform. They have this stripe. And so fish come over to them and they allow themselves to be cleaned. They even open their open their mouths and they never eat the cleaner fish even though they could. And the cleaner fish they have this kind of uh, arrangement. Um, And there's a a whole lot of actually very interesting fish psychology that goes into this, where if there's other fish watching, the cleaner fish do a better job so that they'll get more client fish coming on. I'm not actually kidding about that, it's really amazing. So all of these behaviors are actually to prevent pathogens and parasites from infesting the animals. But uh, with us, we have this thing called disgust, and it's what people have called the core of the behavioral immune system, so we have a regular immune system. that fights off pathogens once they get inside of us, but you can call disgust the behavioral immune system because it keeps things from getting inside of us in the first place. And disgust is considered to be um, uniquely human, and you can consider disgust an adaptation to avoid uh, pathogens. And this is a somewhat complicated story, but this is a, one of the core ideas, is that disgust actually helps us avoid uh, disease. There's similar elicitors of disgust across societies, so, for example, if I asked you what you guys consider disgusting and I ask you know, people in India or Nigeria or China what's disgusting, people tend to say very similar things, you know, sick people, uh, vomit, menstrual blood, I could go on, but you guys get the idea. So there's very similar disgust elicitors across society, although what foods we eat are very, very different across different societies. And um, there's also a cross-culturally recognizable facial expression of disgust. We're the only species that communicates to each other that something gross is happening. And uh, you don't see this in chimps. If you've ever spent any time with chimps, you'll know that chimps do not have a disgust response the same way that we do. And so why are we communicating to each other that things are disgusting? And why are we avoiding these things? Why do we have this you know, social and contagious uh, cognition? So. One idea is that there's this uh, disease avoidance program. So first, you detect cues of potential disease, and I'll show you guys an example of that in a moment. So cues of potential disease are things like vomit and feces and dead bodies, things like that, which disgust us. That triggers an emotional and cognitive response. You know, you don't see a dead body and, and think that you would like to cuddle it, or you don't see vomit on the street and like go and examine it carefully, unless you're like some weird disgust researcher who needs a picture for her files. Um, And then that facilitates the avoidance of pathogens. It facilitates us avoiding these pathogens and keeping them far enough away from us that they can't get inside. And then we don't have to invest in the energy costs and actually take the risk of potentially being infected. So this is an adaptationist evolutionary psychology kind of hypothesis that has some um, different ramifications. So this is idea that disgust evolved uh, to prevent disease. So there was a study done with 40,000 participants through, uh, I think, an EBC website. And what they did is they showed people different pictures that varied in their disease risk. And this is all actually just uh, food coloring. But so this picture they showed people, and they said, how disgusted would you be to stick your finger in this? And unless you're a Smurf, this is not very disgusting. And they said how disgusted would you be to stick your finger in this? Maybe a little bit more so. It looks a little bit more like a potential, you know, disease product and then finally how disgusted would you be to stick your finger in that, right? And people were more disgusted the more it looked like a potential human product. And so that is one indication that potentially disgust evolved to prevent the risk of disease. But one problem with disgust is that there might be mismatch, there might be various things going on that might prevent it from having the relevant outputs. So what you might expect is that in very pathogen rich environments, like places where people get sick a lot, you might expect people to be more disgust sensitive because it's important for them to avoid disease. So um, they've done studies cross-culturally about disgust. and. Uh, They find that childhood illness predicts preference for healthy faces, so how attractive you find healthy versus unhealthy faces is predicted by how ill you were as a child. So this is what evolutionary psychologists would call like a cost-benefit analysis or trade-offs. So what you might do is, if you had a mechanism to detect disease, the mechanism might say, if you live in a pathogen-rich environment, then calibrate this particular adaptation to be more sensitive. So, for example, if you lived on an island full of snakes that were venomous, you might be actually more sensitive to possibly seeing a snake. Your snake detection hardware might be more sensitive. Um, In the developed world, people who are more sensitive about contagion report fewer recent infections. If you ask people, would you drink after a friend's water bottle, those people report fewer infections. But it doesn't seem that disease prevalence in a country predicts disgust sensitivity. People are not more disgust-sensitive in places like India and uh, Bangladesh and Nigeria than they are in places like Wales, which might not be what you expect. And in a rural Bangladeshi sample, disgust-sensitivity does not correlate with self-reported health. So one idea, and if any of you have ever read something like Guns, Germs, and Steel, is that we actually live in a much more pathogen-rich environment than we probably evolved in. There's many, many more pathogens in somewhere with a very large population density. And that's only been for the last 10,000 years. So one possibility is that we just don't have the ability to calibrate to this very high prevalence of disease. Another possibility is that people really differ in how robust their immune systems are, and it's difficult to measure. So you would expect that people who are more immunologically robust would actually be less sensitive to disgust because disgust has you know, various costs. If you're very disgust sensitive, you might avoid interacting with people who could be helpful to you. You might avoid interacting with possible mates. You might avoid eating food that could be nutritious but you know it has a bit of fuzz on it, you're not sure, right? So people who are very disgust sensitive, there's a certain cost to that and you wouldn't expect people to be disgust sensitive all the time. So one thing I'll talk about is a recent kind of area of research and how we develop this evolutionary psychology hypothesis around it. So one problem that is not actually very prevalent in the modern environment, but that was incredibly prevalent ancestrally and, you know, throughout mammals and and birds and even insects, is that there are parasites. And as I said, parasites really would like to make a home in you. They would like to eat you. And this is a... um, I think these are both ticks and that's a mosquito. So these are animals that want to to harm you. And, well, they don't want to harm you just for the sake of it, they want to harm you because they they want to eat your blood, basically. And what we hypothesized was that if you feel disgust sensitivity, that is probably a good indication of the presence of ectoparasites. So ectoparasites, which are like flies and ticks uh, and lice, have been a high frequency and varying high and low impact problem, right? If you're just having your blood sucked a little bit, then that's actually not a huge problem. But if they're spreading disease to you, or if they're causing lesions in your skin that disease can get into, then that is a problem. So we would expect that if you see humans around, that they might have some kind of psychological adaptations to deal with this particular problem. So what we did is uh, we hypothesized that there might be a design feature of ectoparasite avoidance, which would be if you see disgusting things, you might actually increase your skin sensitivity. And you know we weren't actually sure if this is possible. One problem with adaptationism is that you have to kind of use what you have got, right? It would be great if we were telepathic. Telepathy would come in really handy. You would know if your partner was thinking about somebody else. You would know if your kid was thinking about running into the street. We don't have the machinery. To develop telepathy, unfortunately. And so even though that would be very adaptively relevant, we we don't have it. So we thought that insofar as skin can become more or less sensitive, we might expect it to become more sensitive in the presence of disgust stimuli. So if you see a dead carcass, for example, that's a pretty good indication that there are things like um, flies and ticks um, and lice around which might want to suck your blood. And so the hypothesized pathway is that you would see a disgust cue that would increase your skin sensitivity in some way, shape, or form, and then that would reduce your ectoparasite burden because it would cause you to uh, be more likely to experience feeling them on your skin, and that's more likely to uh, pick them off, for example. And that's, um, I wouldn't be telling you about it if this wasn't what we found. We did find that. So we had participants come into the lab, and we did a variety of different studies on this. They either looked at disgusting stimuli or they looked at fear-inducing stimuli, or they looked at neutral stimuli, and then we measured how sensitive their skin was with um, what's called a monofilament. So this is actually a very small nylon filament that's used to test uh, diabetics. It's used to see actually how good your circulation is, how good your nerve endings are in a particular area. And so what we did is we looked to see how sensitive people's skin was once we had disgusted them, and we found that their skin sensitivity Um, this is an increase in skin sensitivity, was really increased after they were exposed to disgusting stimuli. And we did other horrible things to our participants like we had them watch a um, aquarium full of maggots for some period of time. The people in the neutral condition had to look at a nail in the wall, I think, for a full minute. And so we had a variety of different conditions. Uh, But again, this is this interesting idea about possible constraints. So we had two different ways that we measured skin sensitivity. This is a to point, point discrimination. So this is actually testing to see how far away or close together you can discriminate two points. So for example, if they're only a centimeter apart on your back or half a centimeter apart, you might actually perceive them as one point versus two versus the monofilaments. And we actually didn't find an increase in skin sensitivity because you can't do anything about how close together your nerve endings are, but you can do something about how sensitive your nerve endings are to pressure and that's potentially mo- moderated by some immune cells. I have an immunological or an immunologist colleague who has an idea about how this might work. The same way that you feel itchy when you have inflammation, there might be low level inflammation that happens when you're disgusted that actually mediates this process of your skin becoming more sensitive. So this is an adaptationist kind of paradigm where we're saying actually you um, we have an adaptation that disgust is this input and the relevant behavioral output is um, skin sensitivity and potentially picking off active parasites. So that's a, a kind of way that talk about hypothesis generation in evolutionary psychologists. And I'm happy to talk uh, I didn't get into stuff like sex differences or anything, but I'm happy to do that in the q and a um, What I'm going to move on to now is some other criticisms of evolutionary psychology that are very uh, common and talk a little bit about what I think about them, whether they're founded or unfounded. So um, this is a mob coming for the evolutionary psychologist. There's criticisms of evolutionary psychology. One of them is falsifiability. People say that evolutionary psychology is unfalsifiable. Unfortunately, it is not unfalsifiable because recently I have had my dissertation work, something I worked on for a long time, not replicated in a large-scale study. And I'm here to tell the tale about how that all happened. So. Uh, my PhD research basically was I was looking at a hormone called progesterone. I, I don't have time to go super into the details, but the idea was that when women have higher progesterone, which happens in the latter half of their menstrual cycle, they're going to be more uh, vulnerable to disease. So women are more likely to get infections at this time of the month than they are at the beginning of half of the month. And uh, some other studies have shown that people who are have recently been sick are more attentive to cues of disease, like they're more attentive to people who have uh, potential disfigurements. And if somebody says, I'm very likely to get sick, I'm somebody who gets flus and colds often, those people are also more likely to have stigma uh, or be averse to people who um, uh, might be exhibiting disease cues, right? And I can go into that more a bit later if you would like to in the Q&A. And how much is this disease, uh, is this vulnerability Uh, it looks like about 15%. So women are about 15% more prone to infection luteally than they are follicularly, not a very easy word to say, but during the first half of the menstrual cycle. So what I predicted was that women would be more disgust sensitive. So if disgust sensitivity, it's not always good to have it at 10 because it's very costly, it costs a lot of attention. So you might expect your disgust sensitivity to be calibrated to how immunologically sensitive you are. right? you might expect that if you're more vulnerable to disease, you might be more disgust sensitive to be more likely to avoid disease. And uh, what I said is that you would see increased progesterone would lead to decreased inflammatory immunity, and then you would see increased disgust and disease avoidance to compensate for that potential uh, vulnerability. And I found a correlation here. This is just a token graph um, between disgust sensitivity and progesterone in about 70 women in my uh, dissertation. But what I did in my dissertation was I showed women photographs of disgusting things, and they rated those disgusting things as how how disgusting they were, and we found a correlation between progesterone. But these other people came along, and they did not find the same effect. So they actually measured uh, 375 women, repeated. They did a much better study than I did. And they did not find the same effect, but they asked women questions. They said, imagine stepping in dog poo, imagine seeing some moldy leftovers in your refrigerator. And what these people out of Glasgow found was that women were not more sensitive to disgust. And so one idea is that my hypothesis is wrong. That's always a possibility, right? It could just be that this was not a reliable enough cue of potential vulnerability to disease that I just got a false positive, that's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. Um, It could be that the disgust sensitivity increase is really dependent on how it's measured. So if I ask women to imagine stepping in dog poo, everybody's gonna think of something different. Some of you are gonna imagine stepping in dog poo barefoot. Some of you are gonna imagine stepping in dog poo in in steel toe boots. Some of you are gonna imagine stepping in dog poo in the rain. Some of you are gonna imagine stepping in dog poo on a sunny, beautiful day. And so all of you are gonna have different ideas about what that means, whereas there's less room for interpretation with a photograph. So potentially it has had to do with how disgust is measured. Or it could be that progesterone actually isn't the driving factor. And so what we're doing now is actually doing a repeat of that study, looking at this. But actually, evolutionary psychology hypotheses are falsifiable. It very well may be that three years of my life have been falsified. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you very personally that evolutionary psychology is falsifiable. Uh, and we have certainly found that for women, it seems like, at least with verbal measures of discussed, we don't find the same effect that I found in my dissertation research. Um, I'm pretty sure that, that Volker's going to talk about this later, so I won't actually steal his thunder, but there's been a bunch of evolutionary uh, um hypotheses that have been falsified. So the premise that evolution influences human psychology itself has not been falsified, and I don't think it can be, otherwise you'd have to falsify evolution itself, but certainly these middle level kind of hypotheses have been. So one of them is kin altruism and homosexuality. One idea is that men... Uh, who are gay are better at taking care of their nieces and nephews, and that's how homosexuality evolved. So each of my nieces and nephews has 25% of my genes. If I don't have any of my own kids because I'm gay, but I help my brother or sister have tons more kids, then those same genes for homosexuality can get passed on. But I'm pretty sure we'll talk about that. The dual mating strategy hypothesis of uh, women's sexuality, there's this uh, idea that's been knocking around for a long time and it actually may well have been very recently falsified that women prefer more high testosterone kind of alpha males when they're ovulating because they want to get pregnant with those males and then they want to like leave another man footing the bill, right? And what they've actually found is that the rates of cuckoldry, the rates of non-paternity, men who actually are taking care of kids that they think are theirs but are not, it's actually pretty low, it's like 1% across societies. So this actually might not have been a big enough driving force. Uh, It might not have been a driving force for women to have sex outside their main um, pair bond. So this one idea was that women, they have desires for different kinds of men depending on whether or not they're fertile, and they use sex for different reasons across the menstrual cycle. This may or may not be the case. This is one idea that uh, is potentially falsified. It seems that women have some more sexual fantasies at ovulation when they can get pregnant, but it actually doesn't seem like they prefer men who have super different characteristics in larger studies that they've done. And there's also this loser male hypothesis of sexual assault, which is that men engage in sexual assault when they don't have the resources or the means with which to actually woo a mate. And this has actually been pretty well disconfirmed. Men who report being more sexually aggressive with women actually also report having more um, consensual sex partners as well. Uh, Whereas in other species, there are other species, for example, where males rape or have sexual assault female or have forced sex with females when they have no means with which to woo her. Uh, For example, in scorpion flies, they'll give the female a nice fly. She eats the fly. He copulates. But if you actually starve the males, you don't give them any food, um, they will actually force sex on the females. So that's this hypothesis. But that was totally disconfirmed in humans. So these are all hypotheses that have been falsified and just showing you that evolutionary psychology is, in fact, um, falsifiable. The next criticism is that evolutionary psychology uses weird samples. And this is a criticism of psychology generally. And what do we mean by weird samples? We mean Western, educated, industrialized, rich democracies. We are weird, right? All of us here, super weird. And the reason that we're weird is that we only account for about 12% of the global population. Most people are not like us. Most people live in somewhat different kinds of societies, they are more likely to live with their extended families, they live in poorer environments, they live in more pathogen rich environments, they live in uh, with, you know, extended kin networks, things like that. So this is this idea that actually we're very unusual and measuring just 12% of human societies is not a very good way of figuring out what the human general psychology is. And what they've actually found is that two major journals of evolutionary psychology, 81% of the samples were weird. And as uh, people here who are familiar with psychology know, undergraduates are the any pigs, the white lab rats, the zebrafish of the psychology world. They are used actually, if something is true in undergraduates, we will think for many decades that it's true of everyone. And But 96% and 90% of samples in social psychology and developmental psychology respectively were weird. So actually evolutionary psychologists, I'm not saying that we're doing a great job, but are somewhat more likely to use samples in places like Africa, Southeast Asia, places that are not Western educated industrialized um, rich democracies. Another criticism of evolutionary psychology is that we have a conservative bias. We think that men and women are different because really, ideally, we wanna go back to the 1950s. We wanna go back to women wearing those like weird cone bras and like those big skirts and people having tons of kids and barbecues and really, we're just saying that psychology is this way because ideally, we really wanna go back to the olden days. And so actually, we're not reporting true findings, we're reporting things as we wish they were. So we are essentially um, reactionaries. We want all women to be pregnant and barefoot in kitchens, making, I don't know, pumpkin pie or whatever women made back then, uh, and serving their husband a nice gin and tonic when he comes home. So this is this idea that there's a conservative bias among evolutionary psychologists, and that's why we say human nature is the way that it is. And there was a study done back in um, 2007, looking at graduate students in different areas of psychology. So they divided it up into adaptationists, people who use evolutionary psychology, versus um, non-adaptationists. So it was like 160 was the sample, about 30 um, evolutionary psychologists. And they measured three different kinds of aspects of you know, progressivism or liberalism. And what they found was that um, Evolutionary psychologists and social psychologists didn't differ on what they call political compassion and um, wealth redistribution, so uh, evolutionary psychologists and other psychologists were similarly likely to say that they were in favor of a progressive tax. They were similarly likely to say that they were in favor of environmental regulations, but actually evolutionary psychologists were somewhat more likely to say that they were in favor of gay marriage at this time in 2007 in the United States. So evolutionary psychologists don't have this conservative bent that I think they're often depicted as having, even though, uh, I I mean, there's obviously individual people like myself who are prominent uh, that might make you think otherwise, but most evolutionary psychologists I know um, have a very left-leaning bias, as most psychologists do generally. Oh, there we are. So, um, <laughs> evolutionary psychology, I think, is a, is a lens with which to view human behavior and to generate and test hypotheses. So it's a way of, of looking at human behavior as a set of adaptations. Evolutionary psychology aims to be conciliant with ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. So one reason why evolutionary psychology has a somewhat easier time generating hypotheses is, you know, literally I had a colleague who had a paper that she did where half of her subjects were fish and half of her subjects were human women. Because what she was looking at was, are females of the species more attracted to males who are getting um, female attention? Because male mate value is not totally obvious. And she found that in fish, and she found that in women. So you can actually look at behavior across a large group of species. That's a a mate copying paper that she did. You can ask me if you want. Um, Adaptations are constrained by available cognitive and physiological capacities, right? Uh, People's skin can become sensitive (coughs) more in one way, but not another. As I said, if we could be telepathic, you know, if evolution had shaped our telepathy, we'd be really good at telling what our partners were doing or what our children were doing, but I don't think we'd be very good at, um, for example, channeling the spirits of dead relatives. Uh, I don't know how much they would have to tell us. So if evolutionary psychology is is true, then it means that we're constrained by our available uh, cognitive and physiological resources. Um, Evolutionary hypotheses are falsifiable as I have been unfortunate enough to possibly find out. And evolutionary psychology, like other psychological fields, should make some significant improvements, right? Um, There's still a lot of posting of uh, false positives. There is a new stride now, which is pre-registration, where you tell a journal, these are the predictions I'm going to make, these are the kinds of tests that I'm going to do, so that you can't just keep doing statistical tests on the data until they show you what they want, what you want to see, right? You can't do what's called uh, p-hacking, which some of you might know about. And also we should make improvements in testing people around the world. That's expensive to do. It's not as easy to do as asking the people who are taking your human sexuality class to fill out a survey. But it is something that people should strive to do, collaborating with people around the world to see actually if these particular human characteristics are really cross-cultural. There's been a whole bunch of studies now showing that people in Western or weird cultures actually uh, do things a bit differently um, in certain kinds of economic games, probably because we live in such an unusual environment relative um, to the other 88% of the world. Thank you so much. I'll just open you up to questions.
2: You haven't spoken about coevolution at all. Um, those cleaner fish are a good example of yeah. co-evolution, and that's a sort of two-way, there must be more than two-way, three-four-way evolutionary factors.
1: In I do, there's sort of kind of niche construction stuff. There's a very interesting case of a honeybird, and now, I think Volker might know where this honeybird lives, but, um, the honeybird gives a certain kind of call, and then there's a, a symbiotic relationship where the human goes, collects the honey, and then breaks open the comb for the birds to eat the larvae. So there are kinds of symbioses like that. People also talk about this with um, lactose tolerance and cattle. Uh, but in so far as more complicated coevolution, that's not really my area of expertise.
2: Okay. I might need to um, go around the houses to get this question out to you, but um, um, it's on the frequency of adaptive um, strategies. Yeah. Um, so, is intelligence
1: um, a higher priority for women than beauty, and how powerful? Oh, so, so women more focused on masculine intelligence or masculine beauty. Yeah. You already stumped me twice. This is like amazing. Um, so women, uh, there are differences between men and women and how much they care about these things. So there was a large study done of 37 cultures, and they had men and women rate how important they find 14 different characteristics. So things like physical attractiveness, ambition, earning potential, not intelligence per se, but things that go with that, right? And for women and men, they actually had very similar mate choice on a couple of their first uh, options. So everybody wanted somebody with a kind uh, personality, and everybody wanted somebody who was generally healthy, but women actually had a much higher preference for a man who is ambitious, had good earning potential, and men had a much higher preference for physical attractiveness. And the idea there is that a man's uh, resource provisioning is important to a woman uh, because uh, she is actually the higher investing sex. It takes nine months plus three months of breastfeeding for her to have a child. And each of her shots at reproduction, she gets about six in hunter-gatherer societies, is very precious. Whereas a man, as I talked about Genghis Khan, could literally have thousands of children because it can take as little as 15 minutes for him to produce a child. So there's a huge disparity in how long it takes for a man and a woman to produce a child. And so what a woman wants is somebody to help shoulder that burden, and that's what that preference for ambition, intelligence, and earning potential comes in, is that she needs somebody potentially to help provision her, and this is a common evolutionary psychology hypothesis. Whereas beauty, and actually this is something that's come under fire as well, uh, there's this idea that um, women who have a smaller waist-to-hip ratio are more, f- more fertile, and now there's some wobble about whether or not that's actually true. But Certainly, cues of beauty and physical attractiveness generally are correlated with youth and fertility. And so that's why men have preferences for these characteristics because a man who is more attracted to an 80 year old than an 18 year old would have had probably less reproductive success than a man who was attracted to an 18-year-old over an 80-year-old. So cues of youth are considered at- attractive. So this is where you see sex differences in, in mate choice. And if you just saw somebody's mate choice, like if you just saw what they prioritized, you could predict whether or not they were a man or a woman about 90% of the time, knowing nothing else about them. So these are actually very, across cultures, very predictive. and. Um, you know, one of the falsified hypotheses I'll go on to say is that, um, you know, my former advisor, he was curious about whether or not men and women would prefer a partner, uh, men would prefer a woman who had fewer sexual partners. And this really differs a lot cross culturally. In China, for example, Back in the early 2000s, late 1990s, uh, both partners would prefer somebody who had no previous sexual partners or maybe one, whereas in Scandinavia and other places, they thought it was pretty weird if you hadn't had very many sexual partners, so they actually preferred somebody who had more sexual partners. So it wasn't like a cross-cultural preference for somebody with a fewer number of sexual partners as he thought it might be, so that was falsified.
0: Uh, Dan, I was interested in what you said about mismatch, um, yeah. so what, what I worry about is that not only have we already created environments that we haven't evolved to exist in
2: but that our ability to create new environments that we uh, uh, don't have the adaptations for will outrun our ability to uh, evolve yeah. those adaptations so not only is it already bad
0: but that it's going to get worse so I guess my question is what is the end game for mismatch?
1: Uh, people have talked recently about how there are these developers in Silicon Valley who don't let their own children use iPads or or, or whatever other pads there are, uh, or phones or anything like that. And I certainly have found that there's an iPhone thing now that tells you what your screen time screen time is. And I am uniformly horrified at the amount of time I spend on my screen. So this is this thing where you know. It, if, am I more interested in the person that's sitting right in front of me or am I more interested in 30,000 people on Twitter, right? And that's a huge difference. Like, you're just one person, sorry. <laughs> you know? And so it can become really, yeah, this is huge disequilibrium. And I'll just plug something I wrote a few months back. I wrote a piece about um, sex robots where I talked about this kind of fake fitness. It's called Uncanny Vulvas, you can look it up. And uh, it's basically about how there is all this fake fitness going around. So if you're playing a video game, you're getting cues from your environment that you're succeeding wildly at what it is you're doing to the exclusion of actually developing human connections or talking to real people. And I do think that that's gonna happen more and more. And I think that there's gonna be more and more of a market for people to uh, control themselves in this way. I wish, I don't know if everybody knows what a Skinner box is, but I wish that I could just be put in a Skinner box and that like I would be randomly shocked while I was on Twitter. Like I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. And I've just downloaded Twitter on my phone and all of you who follow me will see how silly I have been recently. So, it's just it's 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 very difficult and there's this huge dopamine rush because you are getting this cue that people are very interested in you and every like is a cue of, you know, status and popularity. And I don't know what the end game is, but I do think evolutionary psychology has a lot to tell us about why that can be so compelling.
2: Hi, and um, thank you for an interesting talk. Um, sometimes I'm really interested in evolutionary psychology, but at the same time, sometimes I'm going, I kind of wonder about exceptions that there are out there. And um, you mentioned that particular example of incest, mm-hmm. you know, about how actually repulsive it may be to, to be sexually aroused around people you kind of know. But then, from a clinical psychology point of view, which I'm studying at the moment, what we find is that actually there is a lot of insist out there in terms of sexual abuse, that people are attracted, and ma- apparently the majority of sexual abuse that takes place is among people who know each other, whether it's sibling or parent and children. Hmm. And I, I just wonder kind of what your view is on that, so it's kind of that exception of, of what evolutionary psychology would normally suggest.
1: Incest is still rarer than, you know, if you put like a bunch of unrelated people who are adults in a house together, they would have a lot more sex than families have sex to with each other. Obviously there's a huge difference there. Uh, one thing that I would say is that the official records often don't make a distinction between step parents and step children and biological parents and, and biological children. So if a, a man adopts his wife's daughter when she's 13 and he's 40 and then he starts having sex with her at 16, It's actually not incest, that's uh, potentially familial relations. Um, Another thing I'll say is that uh, sometimes these mechanisms don't come into play. So there's a a famous couple uh, case of a couple in Germany where they were both adopted away, they met as adults, and then they started a sexual relationship together, and that's sometimes called genetic sexual attraction where if you actually don't have the cues that you're related to somebody, even if you know consciously that you're related to them, those mechanisms, incest avoidance mechanisms won't come into play. So these mechanisms don't always work uh, perfectly, obviously. And then uh, there's also, we're much more incest avoidant than we kind of need to be. So uh, if, you, if you have one off, Baby with your brother or sister, it actually doesn't have that high rate of birth defects. You see, royal families obviously thrive for a long time, like Egyptian royal families and um, in Russia, where people are, who are somewhat related are having children. Uh, and then the recessive alleles, it takes quite a while for anything terrible to happen. So we find it uh, disgusting, but not so disgusting that we don't sometimes engage in it when other factors say that it could be beneficial. So it's not a perfect but mechanism, but I would say, yeah, if you put a bunch of adults who are raised together in a house together, they'll have a lot less sex than adults who haven't been raised together, a la Westermark, yeah.
2: Diana, thank you very much for the work you're doing. Thanks. Would you comment on how evolutionary psychology can inform
1: ethics and law? Well, I'll just do that in 30 seconds. (laughs) I give a talk called The Evolution of Morality, it's on YouTube, and I talk a little bit about this. So, I'm a utilitarian, I'm mostly vegan. and. Most people are not, (laughs) and I I think that there's a lot of mechanisms. So, For example, there's this thing called a moral circle. It's very easy to have empathy and compassion and care for those people in your immediate family. It's more difficult for people outside your immediate circle. And uh, I was at this conference once where we did an exercise where we kind of made eye contact with a stranger, and first you made eye contact with a stranger, and they said, this is somebody you know and love. Pretend this is someone you know and love. Obviously, we're in America because this would have never worked in this country. (laughs) This is somebody you know and (laughs) love. And then you circle around, you make eye contact with a new person, and like this is a person on the other side of the world who wants to live a good life that you could potentially help. You make eye contact with them, and then there's another person you circle around and make eye contact with. You're like, this is a future person, and this person would like to exist. And if we maintain, you know civilization the way that it is, this person can exist and they'll live a very happy life. And I found this exercise much more compelling than all of the arguments that I had read previously about the importance of future generations or even the importance of helping alleviate global poverty. And it was because it just... Got into my kind of evolved mechanisms, and I and I felt the that feeling emotionally. So John Height has this idea that there's this elephant and the rider, and our emotions actually lead our rationality, not the other way around. And so we make these post hoc rationalizations. And I think what's really important is for us to use our reason to think about actually what's moral, what's not moral, what potentially non-human animals or people are deserving of better lives or flourishing. But then we can try and hack our systems with things that we know will be evolutionary relevant, like this eye contact exercise that we made. Or I think that some things that people do in, for example, people uh, work together in uniform. If everybody's in uniform, you have a good cue that you're all part of one group, right? So even if you look very different, you have different skin colors, you have different hair Textures, everything like that. If everybody's in uniform, it's much easier to imagine yourselves as a kin group. And these are all things that have been leveraged to help cooperation. And law. um, There's a guy named um, I think he's I'll 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 put it up on uh, later. I think it's Owen Jones, but I know there's another big Owen Jones. But um, he's he does a lot of law uh, work, and he talks about this evolutionary psychology in the law. So, for example, uh, women. I will go on about it. Uh, Women uh, tend to, if they kill their babies at all, they tend to kill their babies before they're six months of age. And there are some hunter-gatherer societies where women uh, will kill three or four infants before they actually keep one in a very similar way that you might see in in non-human animals because they didn't seem viable or because there was a drought or because times were bad or because there was some kind of war going on. And um, in law, what you see is that there's lower penalties for women who kill their babies before a certain time than after a certain time. It's almost as if they're acknowledging that there is actually a natural inclination to do this. And I'm not sure, but that's one instance, I think, where that comes into play.
2: Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask about if you have any specific strategy when uh, for research, how do you Uh, decide that something is purely because of evolution reasons and not like cultural or even the personal bias of the researcher?
1: Yeah, that's also a big question. Uh, So it's almost impossible for people to prove things one way or another. There is this research done, for example, on spatial cognition that says that there are sex differences. Men are better at rotating objects in space. The idea is that this was helpful for men to navigate. And they've actually shown this in five-month-old babies, that male babies are somewhat better than, this, uh, than female babies. And people still say that it's a socialized characteristic, even if you show it at five months of age. So it's quite difficult to demonstrate this uh, to anyone's satisfaction. It seems to me that people are much more willing to accept a notion like, the patriarchy or toxic masculinity, than they are to accept, for example, that women are coy and act ambivalent about sex because all mammal females act coy and ambivalent about sex, not because women are socialized to be coy and ambivalent about sex. So I think it's a more parsimonious explanation that we're like all other mammals, rather than that every culture on earth has socialized women in a very similar way. But I digress. I would basically just say that it's really, uh, you know, people have different views on that. I tend to think that a conciliant explanation, something that fits in with what we know about the animal literature or fits in with an adaptationist hypothesis, is more likely to be true. Obviously, there has to be evidence for that, and there is definitely researcher bias. That was part of the reason why this um, study was done about whether or not evolutionary psychologists have a conservative bent, because people were saying, you guys are just making up what you want to hear and actually evolutionary psychologists, you know, they're presenting their findings not because it's what they wish for. It's not like we thought to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if there were sex differences and women were crap at reading maps or, or whatever, or <laughs> men were really much worse at reading facial expressions. Uh, we didn't think that to ourselves. These, these findings emerged, you know, out of a real cause. And so, um, yeah, that's, I think that's all I have to say about that. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Um, hi there. I, I was really interested to hear about the immune behavioral system um, and perhaps whether endopsychiatry is under the remit of evolutionary um, um, psychology and how excited you are by being able to change uh, the way we behave as animals in, in terms of our bi- uh, microbes. Oh,
1: microbiome. the oh, the microbiome stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. How excited is the field of <sighs> Wow.
1: Yeah, I still don't know how much the microbiome is going to make a difference. There's only a few people working on that, and uh, I'm quite excited about it. Uh, just I like microbes, and I, I actually went to a whole conference about this um, this topic recently, where they took people's you know swabs of people's mouths. We definitely know that you know if if someone obese has um, gastric bypass surgery. And uh, we, we see after they have gastric bypass surgery, those people who are successful in, in maintaining a lower body mass, uh, we see different bacteria in their gut. There was a study of a woman who had a fecal transplant, which is where you get feces from somebody else. I won't go into the details. But she got that from her daughter and then she had been slim all her life and she ended up overweight. So there's these ideas now that potentially bacteria are affecting our moods and our personalities. And that is a really interesting example of, you know, there's symbiosis, but there's also uh, potentially uh, adversarial interactions. So there might be bacteria in your gut. You eat a lot of sugar, those bacteria reproduce a lot. And we don't know that maybe those bacteria have a means with which they can make you crave sugar so that they can maintain their populations, maybe they can manipulate your behavior, or maybe. you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of fasting. Uh, I think fasting actually takes some control back to uh, your person away from your microbiome. But uh, yeah, this all stuff is very speculative at the moment. But yeah, I'm super excited about it.
2: Hi, thanks very much. It's a really interesting talk. Um, I'm completely new to the subject, so I'm not familiar with the criticisms or the strengths of the subject at all. But a couple of thoughts just arose whilst you were talking. Um, very quick questions. The first was in terms of, to use the previous gentleman's question around, um, female male preferences Yeah. does the country differences not suggest the role that cultural and condition- social conditioning play in terms of preferences actually of Sweden versus somewhere else oh, I can't remember in the other country um, and then secondly in terms of the comparison between other animal groups insects and birds etc and extrapolating that behaviour to compare with human behaviour it's an interesting thought because those animal systems if you remove humans live very in sync with each other and the planet, and they have very like clear roles in terms of nature. Whereas, arguably, humans don't live very well in sync with the planet, um, particularly linking to your comment around veganism. There's lots of points you pull there around the sustainability of the way we live. So, if we were driven by evolutionary evolutionary, evolutionary preferences, um, would we not live naturally more in sync within our systems? Or are there other factors at play?
1: Okay. So I'll tackle your first question first. Okay, I'm just trying to like put a little mental note about the second question back tucked here. Um, So first question is that, um, doesn't that suggest cultural differences? Yes, absolutely. So my uh, advisor thought that there was a cross-cultural preference for a low number of sexual partners. He found huge variability and then he determined that actually it's very likely to be uh, not cultural. I mean, is culturally determined, right? It's not a uni- human universal, and therefore, it's not an adaptation in, in human psychology. But things like men preferring more physically attractive women and women preferring more ambitious men—you see that, um, you know, almost everywhere that it was studied. Uh, I don't think we we saw any differences between those. So, if something is cross-culturally true, universally true, then the implication is that it, if it's something is a human universal, that it is also possibly something that evolved rather than is culturally conditioned. And culture and evolution work together, right? Culture also uh, undergirds things. We tell women how wonderful it is that they take care of their babies, and we celebrate maternal love, not because women otherwise would throw their babies in bins, but because we want to encourage the existing uh, psychological infrastructure. Women don't take care of their babies because culture tells them to. They take care of their babies uh, because they're, we're, we're mammals and all mammals take care of their babies. So uh, it, it actually just is a support system, you know, kind of built and braces uh, in my view. In terms of kind of living with the planet and the environment and things like that, um, we evolved in order to out-compete one another. There really are no adaptations for us to Cooperate in order to maintain an environment for everyone to live in. If there was a way, you know, they call this the tragedy of the commons. If there's a way for you to exploit some resource to the detriment of others, but to the benefit of your kin, then you're likely to do that. And you're also likely to condemn the other people who do the same as you did, right? Because you don't want other people to break rules. You want to be able to break rules and get the benefits yourself. And so there have to be cultural and societal structures in place to make the cost worse than the benefit. That's why we don't run around killing each other, right? Um, If you've seen the movie The Purge, it's terrible, but it kind of shows that uh, there are costs and benefits that society imposes, and those work together with your evolved mechanisms. And So I don't think that we live in sync because we have these desires for comfort and pleasure that actually supersede any ability that we have to cooperate to maintain something like the environment.
0: Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.